my dreams came true and recognizing that was a really intense feeling and it got me really excited for the future. All I can say is that you just have to kind of keep chipping away at it. If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. Welcome to another episode of No Set Path. This is a very special episode because it's the last episode in the first season or first year of season one of the podcast. So the next episode in two weeks will be the first episode of season two. So we will be going on our second year. So finishing season one strong with an interview with a director friend of mine. Today's guest is another director celebrating his theatrical debut for a feature film that he was creatively involved with from the script all the way through distribution. David Gattel directed 47 Days with Jesus, premiering in over 900 theaters on March 11th, 12th, and 14th, 2024. He has also co-directed Ginger Root, contributing significantly to a cinematic universe that has attracted millions of viewers from around the globe. His other work spans features, commercials, music videos, series, and short films. He hails from Southern California and holds a BA in film and television production from Cal State University, Long Beach. Today, we're getting into how David set his feature up for success through casting from a similar popular series, The Chosen, distribution resources and tips for independent films, why he decided to do a faith-based film after initially being hesitant, and how he transitioned to directing after eight years as a first assistant director. For those newer to the industry, an assistant director or AD is not a step typically on the track to become a director as it is its own career, but David does an excellent job highlighting how his background deeply informed him when it came time to direct. David has a ton of practical experience and advice, so I cannot wait for you to hear about the latest leg in his journey, which will wrap up with premiering on over 900 screens in just a few weeks. Let's jump into the interview. David, thank you so much for coming on to talk with me and congratulations on the theatrical release of 47 Days of Jesus. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. So this is not your first uh, feature film as a as a director, as a unit director, but it's your first theatrical release as a co-director and it is also your first faith-based movie. Can you tell me about that journey? Yeah, so um, I co-directed this film with Emilio Palame, who is a um, renowned musician and very talented music uh, person, also a great actor. Um, I was approached to do this project two years ago. And I, when I was asked to do a faith-based movie, um, I actually was really kind of upset by that. Um, I come from a family that is heavily involved in faith-oriented things, missionaries, pastors, priests, like, like that's all my extended family. I'm like the black sheep who like works in Hollywood. And when I got asked to do this movie, I kind of was like, why me? Why? Like there's a funny man upstairs asking me to do this. <laughs> um, and I wrestled with it and I found a way to tell the story uh, that felt true to me um, in a way that I could be comfortable with it. Um, and when I proposed that to the executive producer, 
and my co-director Emilio, they loved it. And we went to the to the drawing board, started writing it. That was two years mm. ago. Okay, so you came on board when this was just kind of a pitch. How did you help shape the idea? So uh, I was originally uh, given 19 songs because this is a musical. This is a Jesus musical. And it was 19 songs and I listened to all of them and I was like, you know, this music is good. Um, this music immediately evoked visual ideas. Um, that's something about me that I'm learning is music and sound um, cause me to think visually. Um, and so I listened to it. I was like, this is great. I would love to like, let me think about it. Let me think about what the story is. Um, I, I, what happened was, is I asked myself, why does the Easter story matter today? Um, because I didn't want to make a fake, because I, I felt like my idea and my understanding of faith-based movies was like, oh, it's just films that are like affirming people's faith and telling them you're right and other people are wrong. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to affirm people's faith. I wanted to challenge and I wanted to um, have people question themselves internally. Um, and by doing that, I asked the question, why does the Easter story matter in the 21st century? And to me, what answered back was the reason why it matters is like love, forgiveness, and sacrifice. And so if I take those three thematic pillars and apply them to a modern day story, what does that look like? Um, and so my elevator pitch for the movie was it's Princess Bride mixed with Prince of Egypt, where there's like a modern family story on the outside, and then there's a biblical uh, musical on the inside. And they, the two of them kind of weave in and out to ultimately tell a story of why the Easter story matters. Um, and it worked, uh, apparently. Um, I didn't think it was going to. Um, very nervous, very scared about it. Um, I honestly didn't necessarily believe in the project for maybe the first couple of months we were writing it um because i was like this is crazy this isn't gonna work and you know and there was like challenges and, and all kinds of things but ultimately i learned that like i as a director and trying to be a director um i'm trying to make a movie that is personal to me but also making a movie for an audience and understanding and writing that line with an audience to make sure that they feel heard and listened to and that I feel satiated and I uh, explain why this movie matters to them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. So this was also your first time directing musical numbers, although you have directed music videos before. How did this experience compare to directing, uh, you know, both scripted narrative scenes and music videos? Um, I mean, I would say the, the real major difference is scale. Um, musical numbers are just beasts and they are really intimidating. Um, and how we actually were able to successfully do it is uh, my producer, Donald Nguyen, he, a producer on the movie, he knew that I did not have the experience or I did not have the technical prowess to be able to um, do these like, uh, these musical numbers. So what he did, which was just genius, is he, when we went and location scouted, he LIDAR mapped the whole set with like a LIDAR scanner, like the things that Google cars drive around with and like scan areas. 
So he LiDAR mapped all the sets we were going to film at for all the ancient biblical stuff. And then he hired a previs artist to come in and bring in digital cameras, digital people to scale. And we basically planned the whole movie in the spaces we were filming at because we were filming in Texas. So we couldn't go there all the time. Um, we were filming in different parts of Los Angeles. And so I basically was in like a think tank for two and a half weeks um, of previsiting the movie and all the musical numbers with like little, it looks terrible. Like they're like skating around, like people don't walk, they just like hover. Um, but it was able to get the point across because you could put a camera in this digital space with different lenses and it literally is the exact same as when you're on set. Um, and so I was able to block, I was able to basically like troubleshoot the movie and these big musical sequences before having to go out and like telling people what to do. Um, mm. and, it, and, and the biggest thing when I was doing that, I was quickly learning that I did not have enough coverage. I did not have enough dynamics to it. And I got really disappointed in myself and I was like really beating myself up. And then I realized, I was like, David, if you were able to like knock this out of the park on the first draft, like that would be insane. Like I wasn't giving myself enough credit of like learning what that creative process is like through pre-visualization. Mm. And what were those tools? So you said Donald used a LiDAR camera to yes. be able to map out the set. What were those tools that you um, used and how did you learn to use them? So um, the I don't know what the specific models, but the tool is essentially um, uh, realtors use this laser camera where they'll go into like a home and scan it so you can do like virtual walkthroughs and there's like a software attached to it. It's fairly easy. Um, you, you, you take this camera, you put it on a tripod, it spins around like 360 degrees. You move it four feet. It goes again. You move it four feet. And Donald did this for like a two acre piece of property. So it was like really funny watching Donald like move the camera like six feet. It scans, moves another six feet. It scans. Um, and he like dances. As the camera spins, you kind of have to stay out of the laser view. So Donald's like spinning with the camera as, as it's scanning. Um, you can rent them on ShareGrid. You can rent them like at places. Um, I only want to make movies with this previs stuff because it's mm -hmm. affordable. It's it's realistic. You're not really like, shooting in the dark with like a storyboard. Um, you're not. You're not like. I, I think if you have the means to make exactly what you want via a storyboard, like you don't need to do that. But this allows for like practical filmmaking on location where you can bring in uh, like my cinematographer, Brian Lang, he told the previous artist, like this is the camera we're using. These are the lenses we're using. And there are these presets in Unreal Engine. And that was the software that we used um, that literally mapped the exact frame. And we, we were on set on Texas in October filming we held up the previs shot on our phones and looked at it next to the camera's viewfinder. And it was the exact same. Mm. Um, and it was, it was awesome. And so it, uh, our previous artist, his name was non, he did a great job. Um, there was definitely a huge learning curve for everyone involved because 
how you do things in Unreal Engine, it's like a Swiss army knife. You can do the same thing a million different ways. And so we eventually found a workflow process of basically making the movie. We blocked it, we lit it, and then we shot it. We blocked all the little, little digital people. We then moved it with the camera. We then had the light. It was, it, that's how, that's how we did it. And so, uh, and then we gave those clips to our editor, Andrew Buker, and Andrew literally would edit the previs to the song. And then we'd be like, oh, we need more here. Oh, like this is too fast. This is too short. Um, I will say I learned that people in Unreal Engine can move faster than people in real life. And you don't really realize that. And so it's like so you're dancing cool. faster in their biblical garb. Yeah, well, that's funny. They're just like stiff. They're just like statues. So they just like hover, like, you know, like as they move through the frame. And I remember I remember filming on set and being like, oh a person physically can't run this fast. Like you can't tell how fast they're going in like a digital space, but like in, in real life, you're like, Oh, you can only literally go this fast. Um, mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of disconnect, which was a little bit of a learning curve, but we got through that. Um, that was probably the best thing that, that happened with me with this movie is that previous process and learning that new way of filmmaking. Hmm. Definitely. Okay, so that's definitely one challenge or an area that you could you could learn. That's a positive challenge, I'd say. Yes. What were some other challenges? Maybe even forces of nature on the shoot. You know, working in the summer across multiple states. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, well, also like you know the difference between like music videos and that and like musical numbers is like I said scale. Mm -hmm. Also, just like. Um, I would say the amount of choreography needed and the amount of like communication, I think is a little bit more uh, intense than musical uh, music videos, music videos. Sometimes you can have people show up and like talk for the first time and like figure it out. Um, but when you have a musical and you have like 60 plus people all singing and dancing on camera, we had like two or three days prep with uh, our choreographer, uh, Monica, and they, got like 60 random people in Texas to like sing and dance for two days before we filmed with them. Um, some of the other challenges of making this movie is uh, it was, there was the strike, there was um, the heat. Uh, we had a very hot summer this last year. Uh, we were slated to film in Texas in August. Um, and I finagled a way for us to not have to do that. Um, we filmed in October, which was smooth sailing. It was a beautiful time in Texas. Um, we filmed at a studio called Capernaum Studios, which has a first century Jerusalem set in the middle of nowhere. Um, the, the show The Chosen uses it for their first season. Um, yeah. Uh, we also dealt with, uh, oh man, what went, we dealt with mechanical failures. We dealt with uh, like our process trailer died the generator died and i had to switch a day scene to a night scene and we had to do a poor man's process in the middle of a field um oh, we uh we had a boat uh we had this boat that was a very specific prop that the family gets behind it's grandpa's boat they take the boat out to the lake every every easter break or like they haven't done it in a while and um the boat that i chose when they put it in the water it didn't float and they told us that it would float. And we had this whole scene of having this, like, them on the boat and, like, filming it. And we had this crazy setup. Wait, how did the boat not float? Was it not 
a real boat? It was, yeah. For step number one of being a boat, you got to float. Um, <laughs> it, it was a real boat, but it was it was from the 1940s. It had so much character to it. That's why I chose it. Um, but apparently, like, boats like that need to be put in the water, like, every so often. Like, a car needs to be ran every so often. Because the wood will dry out so much that it causes holes in the boat. Oh, and the interesting. And so you have to like keep these boats like in water every so often so that the wood stays like swollen um, mm. and like thick. So learned an unnecessary amount of boat um, knowledge. But, Wait, so uh, when you say it didn't float, does that mean it's it sank? So, okay, the, the full story, the full story is uh, we're shooting at Pyramid Lake uh, which is a great location, very easy to work with. It's in like northern Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, we're we're filming at Pyramid Lake. There is a dock that we have to unload the boat on, and then it the boat will then drive over to where we were filming on set, which is a different shoreline. It was like a three minute boat ride. Um, I'm standing on the shore waiting for this like boat to come around the corner with my actors and camera on it. Um, and also I get a call from the first AD, Noah Johnson. And he was like, hey, David. I was like, what's up? And he's like, the boat doesn't float. And I was just like, what? <laughs> and he was like, the boat's not floating. And I was like, is that a boat then? And he's like, I don't think it is. And I was like, okay. Um, and he like- It's the shark me, from Jaws. Yeah, exactly. It's the shark from Jaws. And long story short is, the boat, when they put it in the water, it just immediately took on water. It just immediately just started going. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, um, and it was too unsafe. Like they're, they were trying to think of ways to do it, but Noah just like, this isn't safe. We're not going to do this. Um, the idea was thrown out there that we should flex seal the bottom of the boat. And I was like, I don't think we have enough time for that, guys. It's not going to work. Uh, so we, I, I made the call. I was like, scrap it. We're not going to do that. We will revisit that another day and we'll figure it out because mm -hmm. something inside of me was just like, move on. Do not, do not just move on. So we just moved on and it actually allowed us, it allowed us a lot. More, and it was a, really honestly a blessing in disguise because none of us were prepared for how long it was going to take to film on a boat um, with the rig that we had. We did a pickup day. We did a pickup day where we got a mat. We found a matching boat of that because we filmed with it, and then we took it to the lake, and then it didn't float. So we had to find a matching boat that float. Um, we found a matching boat. We it took like nine hours to do maybe like six shots, just because of how intensive it is working on the water. Um, and Brian Lang, the cinematographer had this genius idea where we had a retractable jib arm, like an accordion jib arm sit on the back of the boat so that the camera can, can like arm out over the water and then look at the actors on the boat. Mm, okay. Yeah. So it was just like that, that was a big challenge. And like I said, it was blessing the skies because we would not have made our day on that first day if we tried to film with the boat. If it floated, we would not have made our day. Um, and so it really helped us to actually have more creative liberty that day when the boat didn't float to, I actually went a little bit uh, off the shot list and filmed a scene that's in the movie of everyone enjoying and having a good time at the lake 
uh, which is like kind of important to the whole narrative of the family getting along. Mm, definitely. So you also worked with Yoshi Brigas and Catherine Lidstone from The Chosen. Your trailer for your film was played before the theatrical release of the series The Chosen. For those not in the know, it's a very popular series about the life of Jesus and his disciples. Um, how was that experience having this other series out there uh, also about the life of Jesus in you know, connecting with creatives on your film and also using it to market the film? So uh, back when we were writing the film and still casting the film, uh, I watched a lot of faith-based movies. I watched like some of the old epics. I watched some of the new stuff. And of course, I needed to watch The Chosen because that is the biggest, most popular faith-based um, entertainment uh, out right now. And I needed to see how high the bar was. I needed to see what, I'm, what the audience is expecting and what the audience wants. Um, so I, I watched it and I was like, okay, I think I can do this. Like, I think, I think I can match this. Um, I felt confident, um, that our team could achieve that level of production value for this audience and how they digest faith-based movies. The next step was, is casting. I said to Emilio and Donald, I was like, I really don't think we need to reinvent the wheel on casting people. There are actors in this show that are uh, famous within their community and famous within their, um, their genre, that if we can get one or two of them, that's going to help our audience be more comfortable with watching our movie. Mm -hmm. um, I felt, and they're good actors. Like, like the chosen is a, it's like game of Thrones for Jesus, you know, like it's, it's an enjoyable. <laughs> um, I, I Just like that's uh violence, uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a little less. Yeah. A little less of the, uh, uh, sex and, and violence in the, in the chosen, but <laughs> political stuff anyways. Um, so I, uh, we had our casting uh, director, Jeffrey Passero, reach out to various uh, agents of the chosen actors. Mm -hmm. um, and we got a couple back. And I think what was interesting is I think it worked out in our benefit that we were a movie and not a series. We were different. And the roles we wanted to cast them for were modern day roles and not biblical roles. And so I know that Yoshi and Catherine, they uh, are very good actors. And on top of understanding, like trying not to get like pigeonholed as like a biblical character. And so they were more drawn to the project because of its difference uh, rather than the chosen. Little did we know that because of Catherine and Yoshi, this movie got distribution. Like 100%. Mm. Because it's because of who our talent was that this movie got theatrical distribution. And like my, I've been asked the question, like, how'd you get theatrical distribution? And I say, the actors, you know, whether this is a good movie or not, I don't know yet. People haven't seen it, but I will say that it's, it, it is in over 900 theaters because of Yoshi and Catherine um, and the success of The Chosen. Um, I... Uh, with Yoshi and Catherine were wonderful to work with. Uh, they were very talented actors. 
Um, Yoshi brought a lot to his character. Catherine brought a lot to her character. Uh, they both helped me rewrite things on set, like dialogue and situational things. And it was a very kind of like organic process um, that helped. Mm. Um, it was really great collaborating with them um, in that capacity on set. Um, and that was a really enjoyable experience. Okay, so people can watch the film in theaters across America, 900 screens already, which is a huge, huge release, huge accomplishment, David, for your theatrical distribution. You can see 47 Days with Jesus on the big screen, as God intended. If you listen, you know I'm a purist about seeing things in the theater. Um, so it's going to be those three days, correct? Just those three? Yeah, March 11th, 12th, and 14th. Um, if I guess if there is enough of a demand, um then they will add more dates um also really interesting and i think this is i think people will find this interesting is that so we are being distributed through fathom events mm -hmm. fathom events is like a niche theatrical distributor our distribution company is called um pinnacle peak pictures but our theatrical housing if you will is fathom events and so i found that Fathom Events is potentially a very interesting avenue for independent filmmakers to get into theaters because they don't just do faith-based movies. They do other movies. So it depends on who's in your movie, what's your marketing budget look like, and they will hear you. Like Fathom Events was key and Pinnacle Peak was key um, to like getting this film into theaters and to where it's going because it's like home entertainment and DVDs and it went to the Berlin Film Festival for like European distribution. It went to Hong Kong for like Asia distribution, um, stuff like that. So it, it, it was all about this, like getting it into theaters and showing that it is of that caliber. It's very interesting. Mm. Okay, so you've had some great tips to get distribution for your feature film so far. The first, making sure to attach appropriate casts that people feel like they can really bet on to do well in theaters. The second is to get connected with these great distribution partners. How did you initially get connected with, with companies like Fathom and Pinnacle? So uh, that comes from Kristen Barancaccio, who has been on this show before. Number um, two, episode uh, number two. Kristen um, and I did music videos a long time ago. And when we were writing this movie, uh, this little voice inside of me kept telling me to call Kristen. And I kept being like, no, I haven't talked to her in two years. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> and I kept ignoring it. And the voice just kind of literally was like louder and louder. It's like, call Kristen, call Kristen. It was like nagging me. And I was like, fine, I'm gonna call Kristen. And I'm gonna talk to her about music videos, but I'm not gonna talk to her about my crazy Jesus movie that's musical. And so I call her, we're chit-chatting. She's like, what else are you doing? And I was just like, well, I'm doing this Jesus musical. And she just goes, oh, really? Tell me more about that. And I start to tell her about it. Come to find out, Kristen has like significant parts to play, like with like faith-based media and like mm -hmm. an interest in it and all these things. And Kristen went to NRB, which is the National Religious Broadcasting um, like Convention. Um, that's where she met Pinnacle Peak. She literally sold them the movie, like at, at NRB. They then were like, your movie needs to be done February 1st. We finished filming in October. So I had to finish, I had to make the movie 
November, December, January. I had three months to like edit, color, sound design, all of that. Wow. Um, Kristen met these people at a convention, like um, uh, AFM, like the American Film Market, um, like festivals, like distribution festivals, like the one at uh, the Berlin Film Festival. Um, that I, I've learned that those kinds of film market um, epicenters are where movies get funded and sold and distributed. There is, of course, the film festival route, but I'm also learning that there's this whole other world of uh, entertainment companies that look for projects, distribute projects, all through these uh, market festivals. Um, and you can go, you can like pitch things, you can set up meetings, you can listen to people talk. Um, Kristen went to NRB. She obviously made the most out of it because she got our movie sold. And um, it's all to her credit. Like I feel like she used Yoshi and Catherine in the right ways to sell the movie. She uh, is a person who like um, uh, identifies with the audience and is able to communicate with them respectfully. Mm, mm, definitely. Uh, yeah. You really want to bring Kristen on for another, you know, special episode before her five year mark so we can get some of these answers. But um, oh. <laughs> she just uh, did do NRB again in Nashville uh, last week. So obviously making some great, great connections there. That's that's wonderful. So yeah. again, people go check out the film in theaters, March 11th, 12th, 14th. And now that we've kind of talked a little bit about this film, let's talk a little bit about the path that got you there. I know that a lot of your sensibilities in directing this feature, especially overcoming production challenges, were informed by your background as a first assistant director, which new, new listeners might not quite understand is not usually the, the assistant to the director in the way that it, it directly translates. Could you tell me a little bit about getting started as an AD and how it did end up informing when it, when it was your turn to then direct? Yeah, I, um, so I was a first AD for eight years, um, throughout my twenties and I did everything from like non-union disaster jobs all the way to, um, towards the end of my ADing life, working on extremely high end commercials that did not send out call sheets because they didn't want the unions to find them. Um, so I've seen the gamut of everything, um, you know, dealing with minors, dealing with like, uh, celebrities, dealing with, uh, weather, dealing with boats, dealing with, you know, just everything. And so like this journey of being a first AD and my passion has always been directing and telling stories, but I had to do something to survive. I had to, I had to do a job to pay the bills, to pay rent and to, but I still wanted to work in the industry. Um, and I think that was one of the things that probably saved me is that I stayed in the industry in a capacity. Um, so, I be clear by that. You mean versus taking a day job. That's something totally irrelevant to the film industry. Correct. Correct. Um, you know, I, I PA for several years, um, uh, in my early 20s, uh, doing all kinds of stuff, just, you know, cutting your teeth and making it work. And I, I look back and I think that the, all that experience being a first AD really informed me and in how uh, I, like, 
can be a really a really powerful director in communicating with all my departments because I know what they're going through. I understand their scheduling. I understand how much time they need for things. Um, I'm able to articulate them. I'm able to um, express my concerns. I'm like, this is going to take a long time. I don't think there's enough time for this. Like as a director, I know how much time I need for scenes. I know how much time I need to tell the story and like how many days and stuff like that. Um, I, how it happened, how I turned into a director, I guess you would say, is I was a first AD on a project called the Knights of Swing, which had Emilio Palame as the director. And it was a pilot episode. The, uh, pilot episode did not go anywhere, but the executive uh, the executive producer was like, I want to make a movie out of this. I don't want to do a show. And because of how hard I worked on Knights of Swing as a first AD and also helped Emilio as a first-time director understand directing, he mm. called like, will you co-direct this with me? And I was like, of course I will. Um, and so we filmed the Knights of Swing through COVID, which was a crazy time. Um, and you had to do all the protocols and we had like big swing numbers. It's like a 1940 swing movie. Um, that movie is available to watch like on Tubi and Apple TV. Did not have nearly the um, distribution like 47 Days with Jesus has. But what I will say is, so I, I co-directed the Knights of Swing with Emilio. Roland, our executive producer, was like, I also wrote all these biblical songs about the Easter story. I want to make a movie about it. So uh, they asked me to be a co-director again with Emilio. And we basically applied everything we learned from the Knights of Swing into 47 Days with Jesus. Your talent, the length of the movie, the your distribution plan, your audience, all these things that like we learned on where the Knights of Swing fell short. 47 days with Jesus is flying. Mm. Mm -hmm. So those are the ways that your first AD skills transferred over to this film. Tell me more yeah. about how, uh, but they surely informed your sensibilities and with other films as well and projects like those music videos, right? So how, and even things that you learned while you were PAing, you know, those early lessons, everyone's first time on a set getting acclimated, what were some of those things that you learned that then compounded into this film? Well, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, like the whole filming in Texas in August with the heat. Mm -hmm. I remember I was a first AD with this company called Brat that makes um, YouTube content for like preteen kids. And I was the first AD for a show called Dirt that was like, I call it like Degrassi with motocross. Um, <laughs> It was like an angsty preteen show with a bunch of kids on motorbikes. By the way, insane first AD job. And I was like in my mid-20s dealing with motocross and stunts and stuff like that with preteens. Um, but we filmed in Palmdale in the summer. And it was like 103 degrees. And that was when I learned how slow an entire production moves in extreme heat. And if I did not experience that, I would not have been able to have seen the iceberg ahead of us in 47 days with Jesus and being like, we cannot film during the summer in Texas. That will be a disaster. And I had this previous knowledge because of what I did to bring that. Um, also minors, 
uh, there are three child actors in the movie in 47 Days with Jesus. And I dealt with a lot of child actors. Like I said, that company, Brat, I dealt with all different ages um, of preteens and like minors. And knowing how much time you have to work with minors, knowing how much uh, the logistics that go into filming with kids, uh, how to work with kids as a first AD when working with minors, you also like have to create a safe environment and like a fun environment for these for these kids because the film set can be very overwhelming. Um, so I acquired these skills to be able to communicate with like kids and like work with them and communicate with them. And that's all through the, my first ADing that I've done and all my interactions um, that have like helped pave the way for me to, uh, you know, make this movie because I feel if I got asked to do 47 days with Jesus, like two years ago, I would not have been able to do it. You know, I think it was a different, I don't, I don't think I would have been able to make this movie if it wasn't for the path that I've come from. So why was it, why would it have been two years ago though? So you spent eight years as an AD and it was only around year six that you started learning those things that were pivotal in directing this film. What was the difference? I, I think the difference was scale. Um, mm. you know, this is a $2 million movie and like only until like two years ago did I learn how to deal with scale, like, you know, 60 background, massive cast numbers, um, like all, like just scale, just like, uh, there's so much time that goes into that and knowing like when to speak up and when to like let things happen because it can be also overwhelming. Um, and as a director, you want to fuss over every single little detail, but being a first AD taught me like which details matter the most. Um, and what I, it all boils down to what, how much time do I need to tell the story? And so I'm not going to fuss on these details because I have bigger fish to fry elsewhere. Um, there was a point, mm -hmm. there was a point when we were filming, um, we had two days to film the biggest music number in the movie. Um, it was like 60 plus background. We had like all 12 disciples. We had Jesus on a donkey. We had people going through ancient Jerusalem city. Uh, every shot was moving. We had jib, steady cam, dollies, you name it. Um, and there was a point in the second day where, I was realizing that we were going to run out of time and daylight making the movie right? and not, and we weren't going to be able to finish the music number. So I went to Noah, my first AD. I was like, Noah, I don't mean to step on your toes. I'm going to need to just take over and I'm just going to need to like tell people what to do and where to go. And I'm going to need your help to just do that because I had to like Noah and I then basically were on set tag teaming and almost like two first ADs where like, we were just like, you here, you there, and like getting like can't like I'm talking to Cam like cameras here, it's going here because I knew it all because of the previs. I knew exactly where the camera needed to be at what point in time during the song to to do that. And so, right, I would not have been able to have done that and like command that group of people if I had not been a first AD for eight years. I would not know how to carry myself, articulate myself. Um, trust in other people like you know i think sometimes as a director like i found myself getting a little nervous about trusting other people um but i realized is like a first ad taught me that i can trust 
these creative people I put in charge because like we hired them, you know, like they're here to do a job and they're here to do a good job and everyone did a great job. Um, so it was, that was a really interesting experience. And I felt like Noah and I were like the kind of the, the scene in the movie where people's like backs are up against each other and they're like, like shooting them down as they're spinning around. That's what it felt like. Uh, it was great. Um, but yeah, that's, does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I mean, shout out Noah. Uh, I think also what helped in that situation is your longstanding relationship with him um, from second AD and first AD to first AD and director. Yeah. Another project you guys worked on together that was maybe one of your earlier times coming into a project as a second unit director was one that Noah was also was on. So that was in uh, shooting 2018, 2019. That was a blood pageant when you were one oh. of the second unit directors. Yeah, which uh which had its own set of <laughs> which had its own set of production challenges but it made me think of this as well because it also had a huge cast and um in some ways was kind of similar in scale did that production prepare you at all for this one 100 blood pageant is a whole other podcast but <laughs> but what i'll say is this blood pageant was my first feature i ad'd and i was like 22 years old 23 um and i I remember my professor recommended me to the people, my college professor recommended me to the people to be their first AD. And when things kind of started getting a little crazy, I called him. I'm like, what have you signed me up for? Like, this is insane. Why would you do this to me? Do you hate me? And my professor said, David, he was like, you're going to go through this process and you'll become fireproof. And I did. I like sometimes some of the craziest experiences. Um, make you realize that nothing will ever be as crazy as that. And I- Okay, well, we need to, we need to give some context to listeners here because, uh, you know, any set probably seems a little extreme and a little chaotic to someone in their first few years out, but this one had specific things that made it challenging. Is that correct? Yes, there was a massive cast. Um, it was a mm -hmm. lot of, there was a lot of kind of like first time people making a movie and, the film like ran out of money midway through production. Like we had to like stop. Like there's moments where police had to get involved. A lawsuit happened. Luckily I was not involved in any of this. I was just like the man behind the curtain trying to get the circus to keep going. Um, I was a first AD. Then they like, like I said, I ran out of money. And then when they did the pickups, they asked me to like be a second unit director for it, which was like my first taste at mm -hmm. kind of directing something. Um, outside of school, outside of like a personal project. Um, and so like Blood Pageant is a, it's a faith-based horror movie that has Snoop Dogg in it. Um, so if you guys- Perfect go, pitch. Yeah, perfect pitch. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, that was one of those things where it's like every, every experience, whether good or bad that you go through working in the film industry ultimately gives you um a hide to deal with things when they're challenging in the future like i mm. i remember just shit hitting the fan with blood pageant and getting through that and then dealing with future productions where i'm like well it's not as crazy as that like it's not as bad as that you know and like when you have that weird perspective when you've been when you've been in the trenches everything is like a little easier. Um, and so I highly recommend to young filmmakers and young people that you need to do as much as you can all the time, 
because it will make you fireproof. My professor was 100% right that I became, I became bulletproof to disaster because I had been amongst it. Um, and you know, the, and to the credit, to the credit, the movie came out, um, it got distribution and you know, I, it's, it's incredibly difficult to make a movie and get distribution. So I'm very proud of those people and what they were able to accomplish. Mm. Where do you think the line is nowadays between something that's going to help sharpen your skills and make you, as you say, fireproof and just practicing badly? You know, it's kind of the practice makes perfect thing. But if you're practicing the wrong way, you're just going to become very bad at doing something. And I'm not I'm not saying this with blood pageant, but I think nowadays there's so much content being made in so many productions. And I've personally just noticed that with you know the amount of productions becoming available or the amount of projects being shot there are some that have no baseline for some of some really really basic things in the film industry so where do you think the line is between you know wh when do you think it's good to choose a project that might be extra challenging or chaotic versus walking away because you don't think it's going to sharpen your skills correctly uh you will know you will know when to make that decision based on whether if you know it's a good idea or a bad idea and what you I mean, mean the by the script? No, no, no. The product, like, you know, when you do this enough and they're like, you read a script and you're like, how many days are you going to film? And they're like, oh, we're going to do this in four days. <laughs> and you're like, you're going to do all 120 pages, baby. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to do, you know, 30 pages in four days. No, thank you. You know, like what happens, I feel like what happens is like as you, as you grow up and as you like evolve in in your career you're able to start to detect red flags to stay away from and those red flags are you only understand those red flags because you've encountered them before and so like towards the end of my ad career i got asked to do you know all kinds of things and I was able to have the have the experience and the foresight to know when it was going to be a good job and a bad job. And sometimes I thought something would be a good job would end up being a bad job. And I learned from that. And I got new, I learned new little red flags to detect. And I feel like as you get older and as you get more seasoned, those red flags turn into like really subtle nuances that turn you into like some like wizard of 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 understanding, you know, like. You just get into like weird like understandings of how productions work, of how like people are and creatives and all of that. And so, but you just, you have to just start somewhere. You have to be a PA somewhere. You have to be an intern. You have to be an assistant. You have to, you're going to go through terrible experiences because if you don't go through those terrible experiences, you're not going to know any better of how, how to discern what's good and what's bad later. Mm. And I think, yeah, that can be true on some people's paths, right? Obviously, if someone starts PAing on network shows, they probably will have a at least a baseline for how things are supposed to be run. Not that network shows are perfect either. Plenty of shenanigans, but every challenge is different, I guess. Um, but yeah, red flag detection can come through experience, maybe only through experience. That's a great point. Yep. So only, only by failing, honestly. And that's that's the worst part about filmmaking is becoming a better filmmaker is by failing because you only learn what not to do as you are doing it 
or as you're experiencing it. And, and that makes filmmaking one of the absolute worst careers because you're constantly learning how you messed up and you beat yourself up all the time over that. But really, when you look back and you look at the things you used to do and the mistakes you made and how you don't make those mistakes anymore, like that's how you are begin to learn that you are a sharpened filmmaker only through failure only through sucking can you become a better filmmaker and that's the worst part about filmmaking i i think that applies to probably the creative yes tools more right because obviously as an ad it's like oh wow we sunk a boat and someone got injured uh, now we've only learned no, so you know no, even as an ad i've made my mistakes of like oh i scheduled the miners wrong like i like mm. i Oh, I did not I did not take into account the travel time outside the 30 mile zone. You know, like the all these little tiny nuancey things with ADing and scheduling and making a film logistically, you only get better by by sucking, by like causing a mistake, you know? And like mm. it will happen. Like people you will make mistakes, but it's how you carry yourself onto the next project that matters. It's how you pick yourself back up. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, so I want to challenge you a little bit on this just because I want to make sure I, I do think there's probably a path for people to be able to learn from experienced mentors or being on sets that have a good pipeline for development. I don't want to just encourage people to be lazy and not do their due diligence on the, on the premise that, well, you have to fail anyway. But I think what your point is, sometimes you're not given those opportunities. And if that mentor is not available or you haven't been able to find the production that has that kind of pipeline, you have to take it in your own hands and move forward. And then sometimes that requires trial by fire. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I listen, I think um, I had, a, I had, a, so I started an art department. I had art mentors. I had two production designers. Mm -hmm. me. Um, I then kind of went into the PAing route and getting into first ADing because I wanted to work with directors. I was like, well, if I'm going to be a director, I want to work next to directors and I want to figure out their process. If that's the closest I can get from touching the sun, I will. Like, I'll be Mercury. Um, and so I uh, I had a couple of first AD mentors uh, that were like really union, older gentlemen, uh, yellers and 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 kind of your kind of your. 1950s 60s ad that just is like you know if you look at me wrong you're fired um <laughs> i i like i think if if there's someone who wants to be creative the best way to be a creative is to never stop creating and that was one of my biggest mistakes is that mm. i stopped creating to survive and be a first ad i had the opportunities to join the dga i um was going to i basically was about to join the dga trainee program um uh but i couldn't i couldn't let myself do that i was like i haven't directed yet i haven't tried that i'm still gonna i'm gonna stay in this in this space this non-union space and figure out a way but in that in that surviving and in that i stopped creating and so when my opportunity came up to create, to do the Knights of Swing, or to do 47 Days with Jesus, I learned how rusty I was. I learned how um, inexperienced I was in a more creative field, which in turn 
gave me imposter syndrome, which gave me um, a self of doubt, like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I was not confident in my own creative ability. And that was my biggest like regret is like I stopped creating because I thought I was doing it, if that makes sense. Um, I was like, oh, I'm on set. Oh, I'm doing this, like I'm doing this, but it's a whole different subset of skills that I understand now. But I'm glad I I'm glad I went through that, and I'm glad I've learned the priorities of 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 if I'm going to do this, how to keep doing it, um, yes. and with like with creatives, like I was a part time teacher for eight years. I taught film at my high school that I went to in Huntington Beach, and I told the kids like, don't stop creating, like because when you when you stop creating, you stop learning what not to do. Um, like sure, I learned a lot. I like run a film set and like be in charge of a film set and like figure it out logistically front end and back end, which is inherent knowledge that is useful when making a movie. But, but being creative is a whole different subset that you have to develop and to develop that you have to fail, but you will, like you will have, you will struggle. You will run into problems. You will make something you don't like, but ultimately you have learned how to make the next thing that you're going to like, dislike a little bit less. Every project that I've done, I've disliked it a little bit less. Um, I'm very proud of 47 Days with Jesus. And I had no idea that a faith-based movie would make my dreams come true. Um, and it did. I got to make a movie with some of my dearest friends from high school and college, which has always been a dream of mine. It's playing in theaters. I don't, I'm in this gray zone where the movie hasn't come out yet that I don't know if it's going to do good. I don't know if it's going to do bad. I don't even know what it really means to have a movie playing in theaters yet. Um, but this, like, my dreams came true, and recognizing that was a really intense feeling, um, and it got me really excited for the future. Um, and all I can say is that you just have to kind of keep chipping away at it, figuring out mm. how how to do it, staying creative staying in the industry doing it relentlessly will get you there it's not a sprint it's a marathon and eventually you'll cross the finish line mm. you know mm. or I, I don't even know if there is really a finish line it's just really? ever, it's, ever moving right that's that's the worst part is that you think there is and then you're like well i'm still running <laughs> I, I kind of like that part though. It's it's not a one and done, you know. If you otherwise, what, what do you even do afterwards? It's a, yeah. it's a lifelong pursuit of improvement. Okay, yeah. so really quickly, just to kind of give people the overview of the roadmap. So you graduated college, you then worked freelance. You pretty much worked freelance your entire career. You never took a full time job somewhere except for, uh, well, working part time at the school you were teaching at. So you graduated college, you went freelance, you were referred to one of your first features by a professor who knew your work. You uh, took a job teaching part-time at the high school that you went to. Mm -hmm. um, and then you worked freelance in features, music videos, you know, all of the above, and then slowly transitioned into directing based off contacts that you made from those features, second unit directing, co-directing, and now co-directing your feature for a theatrical release. Is that a, a correct roadmap? Did I miss anything? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, just a lot of, a lot of hair pulling. <laughs> I have, you know, that is correct. It's funny when you spell it out like that, because you don't really look back and look at it, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, obviously, at the time, it's just the next step, right? But yeah, yeah the next step. And also, I'm just going to say, you literally never know who's going to hire you. 
And so being kind to everybody that you work with and having a good attitude is where I am today. And I know that. I know that for a fact. Um, I know I would not have first AD blood pageant if I had not, like, I worked with the producers of that project with my professor when I was in college for free. I was a production designer. That's why I did art department. I did this like show with them. I forget what it was, but they remembered me and how nice I was and how kind I was and my attitude and my work ethic. And that's why they were like, you know what? We're going to give this like 22 year old kid a shot at first ADing our feature film. Mm. And like, you never know who's going to hire you. You just never know. And that's why I always say is like, put your best foot forward all the time, even if you think you're better than the project. Because there were so many times that I felt like I was better than this project. And I checked myself and was like, David, you have a job. These people trust you. They believe in you. And you need to give them your respect. Mm. Mm. And you say 22. When did Blood Pageant start filming? I don't know. Was I I older or was I younger? Oh, I'm not trying to call you out on age either. I just I was doing the math and I was like, wait a minute, did did they start filming? It was 2017. It was 2017. I graduated in 2015. I graduated in 2014. So I was what um, 21. So okay, it's like 24, 25. And then the film was released in 2022. So that was that was a pretty uh, big chunk of your journey so far. So you say graduated in 2014. Really quickly, before we get into our time capsule segment, I want to touch on your uh, development in film in college and maybe even where that came from earlier in life. But I know, you know, a hot topic right now, especially as some of these schools are surpassing, you know, multiple six figures for tuition. Um, A big question on young people's minds is, should they go to film school? If so, what school? You went to Cal State University Long Beach, correct? Oh, yeah. Went to the good old CSULB. Yeah, and you clearly had professors who were very willing to hook you up with those jobs right after graduating. What was your experience there, and what would you advise someone who's considering going to any film school, but specifically Long Beach? So, you know, I got asked this question a lot when I was teaching high schooler kids. Uh, I'd have parents come up to me and be like, my kid wants to ruin their life. They want to work in the film industry. <laughs> what college should they go to? And I, I would say, look, I was like, there is merit to going to USC, Chapman, um, NYU, those places will give your kids a platform of connections and professionals that will help them. Because what I ultimately learned is that film school, you're going to learn virtually the same thing wherever you go. You're going to learn the technical ability. You're going to learn the the story ability, you're going to learn essentially the same thing. But the price point of film school increases based on the connections that your kid is going to have access to. I went to a Cal State school system that costed me $24,000 for four years. Um, wow. I That school, Cal State Long Beach, did not give me anything outside of my career other than my professor recommending me to that job. That was the one thing that Cal State Long Beach gave me after besides my education and like besides, because I learned that 
my how I could start my industry, how I could start my career is through my classmates. Right out, of, right out of Cal State Long Beach, the only people that you know working in the film industry is your classmates. And we were just like a ragtag group of kids trying to like figure it out because we didn't have internship programs. We didn't have like connections. We didn't really have a lot of things that, um, you know, the larger film schools have access to the prestige of it all. Um, and I, film school is what you make of it. You can go to the best film school, but if you do not tap into those connections, if you do not tap into, uh, the resources of that film school, then it's worthless. No one, no one cares what school you went to right out of college, if that makes sense. What matters is a connection. What matters is knowing somebody. And USC, Chapman, NYU, I think they are brilliant places to go for those people that that can understand at an early age the politics and the connections necessary that these people have access to. Otherwise, like I know countless people who went to these schools who thought they were gonna get like a movie right after graduating you know, or like thought they were going to get into Sundance or, or this and that. I mean, even Cal State Long Beach kids, like it's all the same dreams. It's all the same admiration, but really what matters is networking, connecting and creating. Those mm. are just, those are the things that matter um, to, to move your, to move in a filmmaking career. Um, no matter what you want to do, produce, direct, write, um, DP, like you have to have communication skills and you have to have personal connections with people because the whole idea of like uh, nepotism in the film industry is 100 true why because you're going to want to work with people you like for 16 hours a day for six days a week like that's just what it is you yeah. know that's just what it is and like you're not going to want to like so anyways i i strongly feel that although a film education is not necessarily important or a ticket into a career, I think film education is an extremely important asset to people who don't have connections in the film industry growing up. AKA me, my dad was a bus driver. My mom worked at a hair salon. Um, film school was a safety net where I could mess up, where I could load film in backwards for a school project and blow the whole school project you know like like it gave me a safety net to learn and to grow and to get connections which is my fellow students my fellow uh, my fellow colleagues now like the my cinematographer taylor leach who i do all the ginger root music videos with i went to college with him you know um we went it, it's crazy but anyways film school is important the price tag is dependent on how much you're going to apply yourself. Mm. Mm. All right. Well put. So now that we've gotten to talk a little bit about your path, I'd like to get into our time capsule segment, both to freeze this moment in time on your journey and make some predictions for the future. Oh, okay. <laughs> so starting with the past, if you could write a letter to yourself 10 years ago, what would you say? I would tell myself, don't stop creating. As I said before, um, I would tell myself, keep doing it. Um, like keep creating, keep writing, keep shooting things. 
um, because I did not uh, I did not understand that there are different muscles in filmmaking, and you know it's like first ading was like only doing upper body, but I wasn't working out my legs as a director, and so when I got to directing, my legs were weak and I wasn't ready, you know, um, and that was very a very painful growth process. Um, so I, I would tell myself mm -hmm. to create more and don't stop. Mm. Would that advice change if you were talking to yourself five years ago? Would that advice advice change? Um, no, I would probably warn myself not that I, I don't need a couple of those projects I did. <laughs> Be like, you're above that, David. You you didn't need to do that. Um, you didn't need to go through that hell. You didn't learn anything from that. You just suffered. Um, I. You know, I would tell myself, don't, don't be ashamed of going to that rinky-dink film festival that you feel you're greater than, you know? I think ego and hubris and, like, sometimes embarrassment um, get in the way of, of you promoting yourself and you, like, selling yourself. Because at the end of the day, people have to believe in you. Um, and they have to believe in your abilities as a creative, as, um, uh, as a professional. And I wish if I told myself five years ago, I'd be like, you know, go to that mixer, go to that film festival, go to that film convention, um, interact with those people. Did the smaller film festivals help? Huh? Did the smaller film festivals help? I don't know. I think they help. I think they help socially. Like personally, mm -hmm. I like whether it helped me in my career, I don't know, but it a lot it some of those places are just like the it's like the training grounds. It's the training grounds of how to talk to people, how to network, how to deal with people, even though it is small or even though it is like feels rinky dinky or like juvenile, you know, those tiny little film festivals. Um payoff and exposing exposing yourself to having to like talk to different creatives and mm. people people who are in your industry either at the same level above you or under you and it allows you to practice you know mm. okay moving on to the present what is your favorite song right now Ooh. okay i man like at this current moment in time what date is it march 20 or february 26th 4 21 p.m uh i fell into a deep rabbit hole of like offshoot panic at the disco bands from like 2012 and i found this song called ferryman that i've just been listening to it's really embarrassing it's not a good song um what? But ferryman by shafe Schaefer James and Will Wood. That's like my current song that I like have listened to. I will say, other than this embarrassing Panic at the Disco shoot off song, um, I've been super into Andy Stavas. Andy Stavas is like my friend's piano teacher, and his music is fantastic. I'll embarrass myself and say Ferryman. Okay. <laughs> That's not embarrassing. Um, what is your favorite show right now? So I haven't watched a lot of shows, but I've watched a lot of movies. And I recently saw the documentary um, Stop Making Sense, and I really enjoyed that. Mm. 
What is the best movie you've seen in the last year? Dune. <laughs> I love Dune. What food or drink item are you currently obsessed with? Low sodium V8. <laughs> Very specific. I love it. Yeah. Um, um, what is the most surprising thing you learned from 47 Days with Jesus? My ability to trust my instinct. Mm. What is the most recent lesson you learned? And this could be anything about, you know, relationships or navigating traffic in Los Angeles or a new skill you picked up. Mm. I learned a really weird fact that the company that distributed the first edition of Dune back in 1965 was Chilton, which is the car manual distributor um, publishing company. And it was a huge disaster for them. What a comeback story. Yeah, uh, what a comeback story. Who would be dream collaborators for you? Oh, Willem Dafoe. Um, uh, you know, it's not really possible, but like Jack Nicholson would be tight. Um, Will Ferrell. Uh, Emma Stone's incredible. Um, yeah, those are some incredible people, uh, that are just beautiful, beautiful people. Hmm. What are your current interests or hobbies outside of filmmaking? I am into a very niche photography that takes pictures on videotape floppy disks. Um, and there's about like three other people in the world that I know who do it. And we have a little Instagram chat and I print, I take photos and I found a way to print them and I sell them on Etsy and people buy them. Oh, drop the store. What's this? Where can people buy them? Uh, it's called dead media store. And uh, I found a way to print photos straight from the floppy disks using various decades of technology to make it work. Do you have any pets? I have two cats. Uh, one is a dumpster cat who found me, and the other one is a um, adopted cat from a place. And what are their names? Uh, the dumpster cat, his name is Wiley because he looks like a coyote. And the adopted cat, her name is Cricket. Mm. Do you have any tattoos? No, no, I don't. I've had ideas for tattoos, but no tattoos. Do you have any tattoos? I don't know, and I don't ever plan on getting one. Would you get a tattoo? I had the idea of getting a tattoo that like reminded me of my dad and my mom. Mm -hmm. um, and then my other ones are just like ludicrous ideas that if I was like blackout drunk and I woke up with it, I would be very upset with myself. Wow, that's not how I thought that sentence was gonna end. <laughs> thought you were gonna give yourself a pass there if you've already dreamed up these tattoo ideas. Oh, I okay. sometimes feel like, oh, that'd be a good tattoo, but it's usually just like a pun with a body part, and it's just like not, it's not good. Maybe good for the Etsy store instead. Um, okay, <laughs> moving on to the future. The year is 2029. Where do you hope you will be living? I hope I'm living in Los Angeles. Um, I hope I'm living in a house that I own. Mm, I want that for you. Let's go. Thanks. Uh, 
The year is 2029. What is one thing you hope will have been invented? Oh, that microwaves have a unilateral way of popping the perfect bag of popped popcorn. <laughs> For home consumption only, right? Because I have a vendetta against popcorn in movie theaters. Although I guess they're not popping in the microwave. So yeah, yeah, in, at home. I have like I have. I have like a, a popcorn method that I pass out to my friends that I have like, um, what's the word that I have studied and, and tested over many years of popcorn making, but it depends on your machine, the type of popcorn. We need some like unilateral, you know, we need, um, government needs to get involved and regulate microwaves and popcorn. <laughs> wow, we both have really um, Supreme Dictator-like takes on popcorn and I'm kind of here for it. <laughs> Okay, the year is 2029. If you directed another faith-based movie, what do you think it would be about? You know, I, I want to try and do, I'd like to do a movie that's like maybe the story of Job or David and Goliath um, or Esther. I think those are powerful biblical characters that have themes that are applicable to us today. Mm -hmm. Okay, five years from now, what do you think will be the latest thing that is taught in the film class at your high school in Long Beach? Definitely it's going to be uh, a little bit of AI and filmmaking and storytelling. Mm. It just will be. Um, I think also like just like virtual reality sets and that kind of level of filmmaking is going to be um, slowly start to be introduced. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I'm even curious to know if it's going to even be consciously taught or if it's just going to be so ingrained that it's just part of the conversation and teaching anything you know yeah that's but true. time will tell lastly i would like you to leave a voicemail for yourself to listen to in 2029 uh hey david well um don't forget that your dreams came true and you worked really hard for them bud and you wouldn't have been there without all your friends so hope you're still friends with them and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm proud I of you. I, I hope we're still friends then, David, too. And I'll also be proud of you as your friend in 2029. I'm, I'm calling it now. Um, well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Where can people keep up with you and the film online? Um, my Instagram, just David M. Gattel. And you can go to 47dayswithjesusfilm.com. Um, also, you can just go to any theater website, AMC, Cinemark, Regal, uh, they're, all, they're all playing the movie. So if you just search it in their search bar, you'll see what theaters near you are playing it. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, Rebecca. I had a great time. Here is a recap of some takeaways from my conversation with David. One, Having a first AD background can help you know when to let certain details go as a director to focus on your biggest creative priorities. Two, the craziest experiences are what can make you fireproof. Three, every experience, good or bad, gives you a skin to deal with future challenges. Four, with experience, you grow to understand the red flags, signals, and nuances that indicate whether a project is worth taking on. Five, you will make mistakes, but it's how you pick yourself back up that counts. 
six, you never know who's going to hire you. It's important to be kind and always put your best foot forward. And seven, the best way to be a creative is to never stop creating. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at www.nosetpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.